it's not all or nothing. Like this might not be the phase of my life where I'm exercising uh, three times a week or going to yoga classes, but I can take a walk outside or I can just go put a blanket out with my kids and let them have a picnic to get some sunshine. When families go through a big transition, like moving to another country, it can be difficult for both children and parents to adjust. And having the bandwidth to support your child when you're also going through a really big shift can feel daunting and overwhelming. For military families in particular, this is a challenge that many are faced with time and time again. Here today to offer support for parents going through a big move or any other major life shakeup is Dr. Hannah Samaha. Not only is she a military spouse herself with two young daughters who's had to navigate a massive move to a new country, but Dr. Samaha also works as a psychologist offering support for military children along with support for all kinds of children in her clinical practice. So whether you are moving out of the country or just across state lines, this episode will provide you with practical moving hacks for kids, creative ways to keep them connected with friends they might be leaving behind, and highlight the importance of community for the health of children, parents, and the entire family system as a whole. Hi, I'm Dr. Sarah Bren, a clinical psychologist and mom of two. In this podcast, I've taken all of my clinical experience, current research on brain science and child psychology, and the insights I've gained on my own parenting journey, and distilled everything down into easy to understand and actionable parenting insights so you can tune out the noise and tune into your own authentic parenting voice with confidence and calm. This is Securely Attached. Hello. We are joined today by Dr. Hannah Samaha, and she is coming to us from Okinawa, Japan. So it's it's like 9.30 p.m. for you. It's like 7.30 a.m. for me. This we, this is, is amazing <laughs> that we can do this. How, how are you doing? I am good. I'm a little tired. This is like I'm normally going to sleep right now, but we got this. I could talk about the move here like all day long. So yeah. So getting an entire family to another country and working and, you know, working as a psychologist, no less. So like that's a, an emotionally taxing job, but there's a lot of, I'm, I'm so curious how this has, you know, how this journey has been for your family and for you professionally. Can you talk a little bit about how you ended up where you are? Yes. So I am a military spouse. Um, we are from Louisiana my husband signed up with the military like in medical school. So we had a very long time of like not doing anything military related. Um, mm-hmm. And we were in New Orleans for five years for his residency. And then, you know, expected we would go to like San Diego or something. Um, and we get the orders for Okinawa, Japan. So uh, we are here, uh, which is crazy. But my daughter was nine months old, my younger daughter, when we moved here. Um, so I had finished fellowship and stopped working for a while, knowing that we were going um, to be transitioning. So we moved here, two kids and two dogs, which is probably more difficult to get here than children, if you <laughs> know anything about moving animals um, overseas. And I, we came here, I 
got a job quickly at the Naval Hospital, which was wonderful. Um, but full-time work was very difficult with two young children. So decided to transition to working part-time. So now I'm in private practice here doing telehealth, but also still working with military families at a clinic off base. Wow. That's so, so important work. So I'm assuming that, you know, like what, what pop you work with kids, right? Or do you work also with adults? No, I have always worked only with children. Um, I got my PhD in school psychology and then did a clinical fellowship working with children specifically from birth to six. So um, children, you know, I have a specialty in birth to six and I have two children that are under six. So that's definitely like an area that I love, but I work with kids of all ages and kind of like variety and the individuals that I work with. Yeah. And so I'm curious, like working at a military base and working with military families, mm-hmm. is that, are you working with kids who've done a lot of moves as well in your clinical practice? Yes. Working with kids who've done lots and lots of moves and probably know more about the military and the move experience um, than myself. Um, so it's interesting to see like the kids who uh, do great with that and really have Mm -hmm. adapted here. Um, Some have lived here for quite a while because their parents extend for a while um, to keep them stable, or maybe one of their parents is from Japan. um, So they try to stay here, but some kids have more difficulty, but overall, you know, that wasn't like a big thing that I worked on with the families that I saw here because they had been Mm -hmm. here a little while Um, And they've, kids just really do adjust pretty well once they get over the transition period. Yeah. So yeah, talk, I mean, you have two, two young girls, right? And obviously you've been in Okinawa for a little while, but how did they deal with the transition? What was it like? You know, how old were they when you said your, one of your daughters was like nine months old when you moved? How old was the other child? Yes. So my first daughter was nine months old and she was easy breezy, right? Like she, you know, she didn't really understand what was going on. She had us, she had, you know, all of her needs met. So she was really fine. Like the transition wasn't, wasn't difficult with her. Um, But my other daughter was four and it was, it was very, very challenging Um, Mm. way more than I could have anticipated even being a child psychologist. Yeah. And it's like, you never know, right? I think some people will, you have an idea that it's going to be an adjustment or, I mean, all transitions can be, have the potential to kind of shake things up. I always say like, it's like shaking a snow globe and everything is floating for a little while before everything settles down. You don't know what, how long it's going to take a kid's, you know, snow to settle (laughs) because they're so different. Um, how, like, how did it show up for your daughter? Like, what did you see that like surprised you? Yeah. So the, like the transitioning signs for her were lots of meltdowns, lots of tantrums, like little things that were never an issue before. I mean, she was four by then. I feel like kids start to get, you know, easier then you can reason with them more. They have a lot more cognitive skills and can talk Mm -hmm. about, um, their feelings and their needs. And she just regressed emotionally, I would say. 
um, to where you could tell like she just wasn't, she was so out of control, right? Everything in her environment had Mm -hmm. changed. She had lived in the same house her entire life, had been an hour away from all our family members her entire life. They could pick her up from school. Um, So she had such stability for those four years and the loss of control was really difficult. And then we get here and there's so much that you have to do for this move. You know, you get here and you don't have cars, you don't have a driver's license, you don't have a place to live, you don't have a school for your kids. So, you know, as the caregivers, Mm -hmm. you're so stressed out with all of these like little details. And then your kids are there feeling like totally out of control and they don't have those things that they're used to either. Um, So that was, it was very difficult. It was difficult for a couple months. um, And that's, from just like friends that I have that have kids of similar ages, it seems like it's kind of a similar process that they go through for a few months of emotional regression with that loss of control and stability in their life. Yeah. I mean, you really paint a picture that I think even families who haven't moved to another country, you know, can, can relate to. Yeah. Like I work with a lot of people and it's, it's interesting. Cause like, obviously if you're moving to another country, it's such a huge transition that it's hard not to be able to see that and its potential impact. Like if your daughter's having like all this regressive behavior, it's not like you're sitting there being like, I wonder why, like it, it just, it fits the picture. It makes sense. But I'm, and I'm curious if you have this experience, but I do a lot where like families will come to me and will be kind of mapping out some like huge change in their kids' behavior and things are like different mm-hmm. and they don't know why. And it's like an hour into the conversation, they're like, oh, well, we did just have a, a move or we did just have another yes. baby or, or, you know, dad just started doing a different job and he has to commute, you know, for 100%. an hour, two hours, he doesn't, he misses bedtime now. So it's like, and, and I, I say this not to like imply that families should know this. It's not always no. obvious. I mean, you and I have a little bit more practice in the, in noticing the patterns because we see it so often in the families that we work with, but I'm always, I'm always like, ah, okay. So could it be that it might be a transitional issue? And so usually parents are like, there's some relief in having kind of like a, oh, there's a reason that makes sense why my kid has been having these struggles. Of course. I've seen the same in practice too of, you know, we, we talk for a while and then we mention like the baby brother that is, you know, a month old um, or recently, you know, I was seeing a child and they started talking about their different houses and I didn't even realize that the parents were going through a divorce. <laughs> it was Okay, this makes sense. Um, mm. But I think even, even as a psychologist, I think sometimes it's, it's hard to sort of see what's going on in your own family or understand if it's totally normal. So, you know, some of the best and most helpful conversations that I had when I got here were with people who were like, Oh my God, the move is like so tough. Like it is just so tough. And our kids were tantruming all the time Mm -hmm. and everything was so difficult. Um, I think that really helped me to see that it, it really was the move and we really were going to be okay because they were okay. And I could see that they had gone through it and they were okay. 
Yeah. Which speaks to the power of like a community, right? Like if you were kind of really isolated because of this move Mm -hmm. and didn't have people to sort of say, I'm, am I okay? Are we okay? Are you okay? Like, are we experiencing similar things? And just get that validation and that reassurance and that emotional support. Like you might have come to different conclusions that may not have been as accurate. You might have gone to more catastrophizing kind of thoughts of like, oh of my course. gosh, something's really wrong. And like, yeah, like how, how did you build community when you were going through this? Because you were talking about your kids transitioning, but like you as a mom – like yeah. what a big, what a huge, you like, you sort of touched on it a little bit of like, okay, I had all of these like pressures to find a school and, and driver's license. And like, you must've been under so much pressure to like keep things as stable as you can for your kids. But like, you're still a person who's going through a massive transition too. Yeah. What so that's, that like I think you? one of, yeah, that's one of the hardest parts is that, you know, we know sort of why our kids, you know, we might sort of know what's going on with our kids, but when we're not okay, it's really hard for our kids to be okay. Um, and it's really hard to be okay going through this. Um, and I think that my expectations were just, you know, like I would look at all the beautiful Instagram accounts of Okinawa and Okinawa is a beautiful island and there's so many cool things about living in Japan. Um, so I think, you know, I'm a pretty adventurous person. So I was excited. I got very excited and like looking at all the, you know, ridiculous parks they have here and like how cool, like the different groceries are. Um, so I think managing expectations is, is sort of huge before you come here. Um, and that's something that I definitely did not do. You know, I underestimated how, you know, stressful it would feel when, you know, we don't even have our own house and we're going into a grocery store and we can't read any of the labels. And, you know, we don't know what to do with our groceries after we buy them because they just give them to us in a basket and there's no bag and, you know, you have to buy the bag. And it's just, it's just a lot. Um, The military community is amazing. And that's, I think, why people are able to sort of like survive these transitions, but also why Mm -hmm. a lot of the people stick with the military. Um, and I think that overseas military communities are possibly like even more tight knit than others. So we initially wanted to live off base, um, and live outside of the military community. But when we got here and everything was so difficult to navigate and we just decided like, let's just live on base. We had friends who lived on base um, and, you know, just saw their kids running outside and playing and just having such a good community there that Mm -hmm. we decided like, this is going to make the transition easier for us. Um, So the community is great. They assign everyone a sponsor before you come here. So we had a sponsor family who was wonderful and kept such close tabs on us before we moved here. And then, you know, picked us up from the airport and had groceries in our hotel room the night that we stayed there. Um, so they were, I mean, extremely helpful, but, you know, not everyone has a sponsor that really kind of matches their family dynamic either. Um, but community is huge. It's just so easy to, you know, walk out of your door. And I literally have a playground right across the street from me. So my daughter can kind of run freely around, which is wonderful. 
Um, so yeah, community has been huge and kind of taking care of yourself through the transition is very important. Yeah. Tell me about that because like I imagine, I mean, it's so great that you have this kind of built in system of support that the military kind of just it evolves within that culture, which is really amazing that you guys had that experience of being so taken care of and like ushered in <laughs> because I could imagine it feeling very overwhelming to get somewhere and then be kind of like on your own having to figure it out. But I also imagine you left a lot of support from when you left Louisiana, like family and friends, like as a mother, having to imagine like not being able to picture this. I mean, you might have intellectually knew that there would be some system set yeah. up when you got to Japan, but like, what was it like to leave? Yeah, it was definitely very difficult to leave. I think, you know, for us, we were so focused on like the details of okay, you know, this is the hotel we're going to stay in when we get there. Like, these are all the things we need to do. I mean, the military involves like a lot of paperwork. Um, so <laughs> everything is a very long process. So our minds were very, very wrapped in on that. Um, so I think like when we left, it kind of hit us of like, we're at the airport, we're leaving, like we're telling our families bye. Um, and I think it, you know, probably hit my daughter right when we got here too of like talking about one of her friends from the neighborhood that she used to play with and really having to explain to her like we you know we can't play with her anymore right now you know like this is not we we just live far away um but FaceTime is wonderful I mean one of the things and I was thinking about like tips for if you are going to go through a transition is like getting your kids used to FaceTime before um, because it, you know, it can be a little weird when it's like, okay, well now we only see someone on FaceTime that we used to see in person. Um, and also having kind of reasonable expectations of like your kids might not always want to FaceTime and that's okay. You know, we're in a situation that's not totally normal. Um, but mm. over the summer I took both girls by myself to Hawaii to meet up with my family while my husband was gone. Um, and that was wonderful and it was, you know, hard to get there, but I was like, I'm just not going to overthink it. I'm just going to go and it's going to be worth it. Um, and it totally was. So trying to stay connected, but having reasonable expectations mm. on our kids of like, you know, they don't want to always sit down and like have a 20 minute conversation with grandma about, you know, what they did at school. They just kind of maybe want to run around yeah. and grab the phone and show them the dog and, um, that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really good point of like, we have to kind of m remember how our kids communicate, like, and what developmentally appropriate for a kid, yeah. a young kid or community, like a four-year-old isn't gonna, yeah, not want to do a 20 minute FaceTime like we could do with our parents. But also I'm thinking like one of the things I had, and I really would love any other ideas you have on like kind of move hacks for families. One thing yeah. I remember having one of the kids that I was working with that was doing a move because like, she was little, I think she was like three or four. Um, uh, and, or no, I think she was like six. And 
the idea that she had these friends that she wanted to stay connected with, but, you know, it's not really easy to get another six-year-old to hold you in mind when their world hasn't changed, right? So you have these kids who are getting separated from friends who's the kid who's moving, you know, their life is getting very, very different, but the kids who they're leaving, it's kind of like the rest of the world sort of just kind of the, that the vacuum just kind of like it's filled. And so one of the things that we had this kid do was, you know, the parents facilitated this, but like talk to, um, so a parent would talk to the parent and say like, can you help facilitate this? But she had, she basically like the mom made like self, self addressed on pre-addressed envelopes and gave it to the other family, like her friend's family. Mm-hmm. So that the friend could very easily send her pictures or like, you know, they come home from school with all this art that they make and like parents are like, I don't know what to do with it. What am I supposed to keep, you know, (laughs) in the envelopes and send it off? And like, because kids don't, you know, at this age, it's not going to be like pen pals, but they're also not on like their phones. They're not on phones yet either. They don't have like, there's a, there's like kind of a black hole of like communication skills for these young kids who are moving, but they want to hold these friends in mind. And so I don't know. I thought that was something that could be perhaps a useful thing for young kids moving to be able to sort of kind of have this almost like old school pen pal situation where they don't actually have to write letters because most of them can't do that yet. Yeah. But just draw little pictures. And nothing is better than getting mail when you're a little kid that is addressed to you. Like real like snail mail. Like my parents, yeah, my parents send my kids like, uh, like Halloween cards and Valentine's Day cards. And they always get so excited when they have like, they're like, it's for me. That mail is for me? It says my, my name? name on it? My name? Yeah. <laughs> so it's a little extra legwork, but I do think it could be kind of awesome when you have a kid who's moving to be able to kind of receive and send stuff um, from their other, you know, the people who aren't leaving. For sure. We definitely send boxes home regularly. Um, And USPS, thankfully, is like our address is technically a US address. So it's really not hard to send boxes or expensive. Mm. Um, So it's fun. We'll just buy like, you know, silly Japanese snacks or like Kit Kats are really big here. They have like 8 million flavors of Kit Kats. We'll like pick a flavor of Kit Kat. Um, And she'll draw stuff. You know, we don't have like a set plan in place. But Um, Her grandparents send her boxes a lot and they'll include like drawings from her cousins. Um, She's, she's been probably more creative about, she's five now about figuring Mm -hmm. out kind of things to do with kids. Cause like you say, they don't, they don't want to sit down and totally have like a a conversation on FaceTime. Um, So one time she and her friend, she was like, let's play floor is lava. And like the moms held the phone, like we held the phones for them and they started playing Floor is Lava in their living room. Um, she's played like hide and seek before where like my two-year-old will go and hide and she'll like have the phone and be like, okay, where do you want to look next? Um, so she's she's been very creative and, you know, I have to give her all their credit for that of like finding ways to connect that are, um, you know, child-friendly and fun for yeah. her. 
Yeah. And I, I feel like people had to get creative even in COVID, like when we were exactly, all in lockdown, because yeah. it was obviously not the same thing as a move, but like the ability to communicate in person was also limited. So we had to get creative. Yeah. I remember like my parents would like read books to my kids on the iPad, like, you know, yeah. that, and my, you know, my parents were pretty good about being like, I don't have any expectation of you sitting for this. I'm just going to be here reading. You come, you go, you come, you go, and it was showing up. And so, yeah, I think helping other family have realistic expectation too, because they're not used to little kids, um, day-to-day communication skills. They might think like, well, why won't you? It could feel like, oh man, I feel rejected that you won't sit with me. Or I feel Mm -hmm. frustrated um, that you're not making the child sit with me, like, and because yeah. they want that connection too, but helping, you know, extended family kind of have a primer on like, hey, you know, this is what they can do. So just managing your expectations. It's not a... Yeah. So much is expectations. And I think too, just having the expectation that we're not going to be as connected to our family in the States right now. Like it's, it's Mm -hmm. just impossible. I mean, the time difference is, you know, obviously a very big, um, so we can basically only talk in the mornings here and in the mornings here, you know, most days we're getting ready to go to school and don't have a lot of extra time. So it's realistically limited to like weekend mornings for the FaceTime calls. Um, and then we want to do stuff on a weekend. So, um, yeah, so just having the realistic expectation of how our relationship is is not going to be quite the same. But, you know, yeah. thankfully, our orders here were, were only two years. So it's already been mm-hmm. a little bit more than a year. Um, so it's, it's a little bit amount of time. I want to make sure that they still know all of these people and feel comfortable with them for when these relationships can be more in person. Um, but it's, it's just not going to be exactly the same. And that's just kind of the stage we're in right now. And that's okay. Yeah. It sounds like it also helps on some level to kind of, in the case where, you know, it's a temporary to just sort of accept that, Hey, this is temporary and it's going to be what it is right now. And I'm not going to necessarily try to like break my back fighting against that. Like there's a level of acceptance and probably is perhaps hard for some families because acceptance is challenging, but like, it sounds like for you guys, it's, that's been really helpful. Yeah. Knowing, knowing kind of the timeline is definitely helpful. Um, but you know, other families are here for a lot longer and honestly, most people get orders here for three years, which is, you know, a third longer than two years. So, um, (laughs) maybe, you know, people kind of have different levels that they have to uh, take of like how, kind of much we're going to push this, right? And I think if we were going to be here longer, it would be more important. Right. I also think like the age of your kids, like if you're going, if you're a military family and you have kids, like it sounds like your kids are still kind of in this window of time where, you know, you're still their whole world, right? It's, you know, I think it gets harder when kids get a little bit older and they start developing relationships outside of the nuclear family. And then those separations become potentially pretty painful. Not that we can't be resilient and we can't figure it out. Like kids are, like you said, so resilient and they really are very creative in how they can maintain relationships. But I imagine 
you know, 12 year olds, 15 year olds, 17 year olds, when they've been somewhere for a few years, developed some relationships and then have to go, um, that that could be really hard. Do you see that in the work you do with military families? Definitely. Yeah. As I mean, as kids get older, they just form relationships that are more so like outside of their parents and, you know, their parents become a lot less central to them, as you say. So it is definitely more of a struggle for these children. Um, And not only the ones who are here for a brief amount of time, but for the children who are here for longer, it's like every year they lose a set of friends. So that's really hard too. If they go to the school with all the military children, um, then maybe they're staying, but everyone else is going. Um, so it's, it's definitely more challenging for, I think for the older kids who have had more settled relationships or those relationships, like you say, are just, just more central when you're a little older. Yeah. What do you like, what are the working with military families and having insight as one yourself, but also, you know, you're working with kids who are really living this out regularly. Um, what's, what do you feel like is like unique to military families? What do you, what insights have you kind of gained over the years in working with this population that like sets them apart and is unique to them as far as like mental health challenges and, and, I'm not even talking about like trauma of PTSD kind of level, but just being Mm -hmm. a family member who has to go through what military families often have to go through, which is a lot of separation. Yeah. Um, So I've seen a lot of sort of the resilience of like, we just move different places and, and that's our life and like some acceptance of that, which is, is really cool to see of these kids. Um, I've seen some really great relationships of kids who are, you know, 12 to 14 or even older with their parents that sometimes that relationship does seem maybe a little bit harder when kids are more settled somewhere. Um, So I don't know if just moving Mm -hmm. with your family a lot and that, you know, having to be more central to you does um, help these relationships in a way. Um, Also, a lot of times, whoever is the active duty military member you know, leaves for periods of time. So that's very difficult on these families um, that either, you know, mom or dad is going to go away for, you know, however long it is. I think people with different jobs kind of leave for different periods of time. Um, So, but if you're in the military, you're expected to be gone for periods of time throughout the year, whether that's Mm -hmm. weeks at a time or, you know, nine months out of the year you're deployed. So, Um, These kids do form really close relationships with their parents. And I think sometimes it's, it's really cool to see the kids like be so excited when their parents are coming back um, in those close relationships. But I've seen a a lot of that of, you know, 13 year olds who, you know, you wouldn't think are like so thrilled about a parent coming back in that relationship. But it's really cool to see that, you know, like dad's going to be home like Friday and we keep tabs on that. I'm like, did he come home yet? You know, like, did the day come? So that's something really cool with them. Um, but, you know, you mentioned trauma and that I think is a big part of the mental health challenges that these families face too, is that, you know, a lot of the children that I work with, their parents have diagnosed mental health conditions. Um, some of that like PTSDs, possibly related to their military service. So that makes things 
you know, more challenging for these families and for these children. Yeah. How, how do you support that in your work? Like what are some of the ways that you are thinking about kids that you're working with in the context of like the bigger family system and the health of that family system? Yeah, it's something, you know, I think as child psychologists, you're probably used to this too of like, we we kind of are going to notice the parents' mental health and and know that that is going to be a big factor in how our kid is functioning, right? Um, so it's something that I've talked openly with so many parents about of, you know, how are you doing? How are you coping with maybe your husband being gone for a while and having those conversations before the child is with us? Um, to get sort of a gauge on like, what is the household looking like right now? What's the climate? Um, And that, you know, people are very, a lot of times want to be so focused on the child and they say, you know, okay, I'm not okay right now, but we're focusing, I have to get my child help before I can get help. Um, So having, Mm -hmm. you know, very open conversations with parents about how them getting help for themselves really is helping their child um, and making it attainable for them of, you know, maybe they can't imagine possibly doing child therapy and therapy for themselves at the same time. Okay. But you're coming to see me every week. Maybe I could see him every other week and you could see someone every week for your, every other week for yourself. Um, So just trying to work flexibly with these families and understanding that like, we all have, you know, a capacity for what we can handle at one time. Um, so really trying to prioritize what would best kind of serve the child and the family, even if that's more of the parents getting help for themselves as well. Yeah, I think that's so important because I always say like, I guess people want to like, a lot of parents whose kids have challenges, very understandably, will do anything to support that child. And it's so, I guess it's not surprising at all to me, sadly, but I see it a lot that like the parents just put their own mental health at the very bottom of the list. And and like, it's kind of like the the challenge of parenthood in, in so many ways. Like even when we're not even talking about necessarily mental health, we usually put our needs at the bottom of the list. And of course, you know, it's out of love for our kids. But to your point, that love for our kids that causes us to put ourselves last may unintentionally be making it harder for our kids to do well. It's such a paradox and so interesting that it's I think when parents can when when parents can finally see that connection, like when you can help them sort of see the connection between their wellness and their child's wellness. Um, That it's like this light bulb goes off, this like permission to be, to take care of themselves. It's so powerful. Yeah. And I think, you know, working with kids who are really young, a, a lot of or most of our work and intervention comes from working with the parents, not to say that their parenting isn't good, but we need them to be the interventionists at home, right? So we're mm-hmm. kind of asking them to go above and beyond normal parenting. Um, and so if we're mm-hmm. not at a place that we're mentally well as the parent, it's it's very difficult to you know, add these extra strategies that the therapist wants you to do with their child um, because their role is is just so important in child mental health. 
Yeah. I mean, the family system, right? Like you can't treat a child in a silo because they're so interconnected. I always kind of describe the family as like, it's like a spider web. You, you pull one thread, the whole thing moves. We're all connected. We can't, we can't isolate a member of the family, especially one of the child, like a child in that family from the entire system. Um, it's not, it's, they're too connected. And so you really, I, I strongly believe that like, even when I'm working exclusively with a kid, I'm never working exclusively with the kid, right? It's no. even if I'm only seeing that child, I'm still working with the whole family. Like I want the parents to be in very involved in that work because like you said, like that they they're with them so much more than I am. So they need to know what we're doing and they need to be a part of like the interventions because and the kids trust them more than than anyone. So the impact is greater. Like I might do something with a kid, but it might not land like a would if a parent did it. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, something that I probably, I can't keep tabs on with families is, is what mental capacity does. Does it seem like they're at? And there's, there's times where we're, we're just not at our best. So, you know, we might not have mm-hmm. a diagnosed mental health condition, but if we're going through, you know, just a regular life stressor, we may not be at our best. And, you know, just telling a parent like straightforward, this is exactly what you need to do might not come off the best. But if I sit at the table with their child and just like, really like hardcore model some things that I want them to do, and then just Mm -hmm. talk to them about, okay, this is kind of what I was trying to do there. um, I think sometimes that can even be as or more impactful than directly mm-hmm. saying like, go home and do this with your child. Right. Cause it's like, if you feel, whether you're conscious of it or not, if you feel overburdened as a parent, like if you just like, if you're just fried, getting homework from a therapist to go and do something hard. more, <laughs> it's hard. And it's like, it's yeah. just more of the load, right? We're, we're probably feeling really burnt out, adding more to do. And like so many parents no matter how carefully we might prescribe this gently, you know, are going to go to the place of, oh man, I'm failing. I'm doing like, if I'm supposed to be doing this, it means I'm not yes. doing it right. And yes. it's, so, it's so hard to hold, you know, it's so hard to your point, like to help a parent see something they could do differently without feeling like they caused the problem. You know, like, and it's totally true. Like, it's totally true that you could be part of a solution and not necessarily be the cause of the problem. But when it comes to like mental health and behavior stuff, a lot of times we we take that and we hold ourselves responsible. If you know, we we really do hold ourselves to a very unfairly high degree of responsibility as parents. Like, if something is wrong, it's got to be our fault. Exactly. It's just like the most personal relationship, right? Between like the mm-hmm. caregiver and the child. And it's, it's like, you want to almost come to the defense of what you're doing because you want to show and want, you know, the therapist to see how much you love your child. But as the therapist, I always have the assumption that the parents have the best interest for the child. Uh, and I've not seen a family yet that has proven otherwise. Um, mm-hmm. So that's kind of always the assumption that I'm working with. And I think letting parents see that that's, you know, 
how you feel and feeling non-judged um, is is so important. And, you know, going back to the modeling is we can tell someone like, do this and it will work. But if we're sitting with a child and, you know, really showing off some good skills that we need them to do and they see their child, the way their child is responding, the way their child is, you know, just kind of sitting and doing behaviorally what they're expected to do. Maybe because we told them this is what you're expected to do and make things really fun. Then if they see like, oh, that's, you know, my child's really behaving well when she does that, then that's going to be really um, like, okay, maybe, maybe there's something to this. Yeah. Yeah. I think modeling is so critical. And like, yeah, I think nothing teaching and showing rather than telling is like everything. And I think that's a really useful strategy in general, like for therapists to do for parents and for parents to do with kids, right? Like you can translate the same thing. Like if a parent wants a child to do something, telling them to do it versus showing them how to do it. Like if I want you to speak respectfully, I got to show you what that looks like by speaking respectfully to you. And it's such an easier way to show kids how to live these skills and how to, you know, integrate them. Um, But yeah, no. And I also think, I always feel like it's so important to be like, it's so, as a therapist, when I'm like at work doing my job with a kid who's probably got it pulled together more with me, it's not personal. I don't get, it's not triggering for me when a kid in my practice, like, you know, loses it because I'm not their parent, right? I, I'm able mm-hmm. to sort of, I, I can access my prefrontal cortex. I can access my, my toolbox so much more easily when I'm, a, when it's my kid and I'm home with my own kids, even though I like teach parent strategies for, you know, staying calm when their kids are losing it. I lose it with my kids. It's so much more personal. And like, it's just, you know, I just feel like it's so important for parents to recognize that like when a therapist is able to do it so seamlessly in the session and they're modeling it and you're like, oh my God, I just would be so flooded by this. It's like, we are too with our kids because when it's your kid, when it's personal, it's harder. It's like, it's just so hard. It's, I just feel like it's important to just be like, you're never going to get it right all the time. You're just not supposed to be able to get it right all the time. No. And sometimes, you know, like the transition here was perfect example of that, of like, Mm -hmm. I totally lost it on her many times when, you know, even though I know what I should do and uh, (laughs) I know I should keep my cool and model for her. Um, I lose it too sometimes. And if you're going to go through a giant move, like your kids are going to lose it sometimes and you're probably going to lose it sometimes too. And, you know, it's, it's not the best, but it's okay. And it's normal and it's a phase and you'll get through it. Um, But I think being a psychologist, it almost makes it sometimes feel more frustrating when my kid does lose it. (laughs) I'm like, oh God, I hope no one here knows I'm a child psychologist. Um, I know. Yeah. No, we we feel it. We feel the frustration with our own kids. True. And it's so funny. Like, I, yeah, I remember once I was at my kid's swim lesson and this woman, like, it was like one of the first times anyone had like recognize me from the podcast and was like, 
oh, I listened to your podcast. And I was oh, like, no. that's so amazing. And I felt so good. that like, I was like, oh, and then I was like, in the back of my head, I was like, oh crap. Now, like, I gotta be on my, I can't lose oh. it with my kids in the locker room. Like, I gotta be like perfect parenting over here, which, which then I had to check and be like, no, I don't because I can't. And I think no. to your point, like whether you are a professional person who works with kids or not, like parenting is, oh, it's a hard job. And like, it is an absolute act of self-compassion and giving ourselves grace and especially if you add on to that a massive move or any other like big stressor, like I imagine you probably had to really get into that practice of like giving yourself grace because it's hard. Yeah. And giving yourself grace sort of like in all things, like you are not going to be your best self as a human being going through a massive transition. Um, so I think one of the things I was thinking about in the transition was just like, it's not all or nothing. Like you can, you know, mm-hmm. go off on your kid in public, but then you can calm down and you can accept it and you can decide like, okay, now we're going to go do this. And this is something that I enjoy doing with my child. They enjoy doing I have the capacity for it right now. Um, Or, you know, this might not be the phase of my life where I'm exercising uh, three times a week or going to yoga classes, but I can take a walk outside or I can just go put a blanket out Mm -hmm. with my kids and let them have a picnic to get some sunshine. Um, So it doesn't have to be all or nothing because I think sometimes it's easy to just sort of be like, well, this you know, ideal that I have is just, it's just unattainable right now, right? I'm, I'm not going to be my best self in whatever area it is, parenting, anything, but there, you know, are little things that we can do that still are going to make a big difference, even if we're not, you know, at our achieving our highest self-actualization, uh, because we have to meet all of our basic needs first. Yeah, no, I think that's such a, such an empowering message that like, It doesn't have to be perfect. It can be messy. We can still show up for ourselves and our kids in little ways, even when we can't always feel like we're doing it the way we wish we could. And like, that's okay. That's really okay. And so I think that's a great message for parents anywhere. And if you do have any, like, I'm wondering if there are any like closing thoughts you have for like parents of kids that are, you know, that are in this sort of military family world where they're, you know, having to move a lot or feeling maybe isolated from family, um, you know, back home, maybe they're not feeling like they've always got their best self having access to that. Like, what would you say to those families right now? I would say as a very, very hard question, I would say to those families, I have worked with plenty of you guys and you are all rock stars because the power and the strength of these families and these individuals. I mean, I had no idea what military families went through before going through this transition and now being here. And I, you know, am a very newbie in the military world. Um, But 
they're really killing it and have so many stressors in life that before I was in this world, just never thought about or imagined. You know, when you think mm-hmm. of military families, it's just hard to fathom like everything they go through for all of these moves and transitions and changing, Mm -hmm. you know, absolutely, basically every aspect of your life, whether you're moving across the country or moving across the world. Um, So the challenges are very, they're very real, they're very hard. um, But the families, I think, as they go through more moves, it seems like they really get stronger in this, which is amazing. And Mm -hmm. uh, I feel like I've just kind of gotten this attitude more from like being in this of like, we're just going to do it right. Like now travel is so normalized within the military community here, which is just so cool. You pack up your kids and you, you know, just fly different places in Japan or elsewhere. And you you don't give that much thought to like, what if I have, what if I don't have the right airplane blow up? Or, you know, what if Mm -hmm. we have a tantrum on the plane? It's like, oh, we have been through that. Like, Mm -hmm. it makes I think the other stressors of life like, oh, I I got that. Yeah, sounds like a really confident and resilient group of people. It is. It is. (laughs) That's amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming on and sharing these amazing stories with us about like your life and just get pulling back a little bit of the curtain behind what it's like to be a military family, because, you know, it's not stories that we get to hear that much about. So I'm, I'm really grateful that you, that you, that you came on to share this. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Go get some sleep and I'm going to go get my kids (laughs) off to school. (laughs) If people want to learn more about your work, more about your private practice, if they, you know, want to, follow you on Instagram? Like how can people learn more about your work and and find you? Yeah. So my private practice website, I'm seeing patients in Japan and Louisiana. It's www.samahapsychology.com. And my Instagram is at it's Dr. Hannah. Amazing. Thank you so much for coming on. This was awesome. Thank you. Bye. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation, I want to hear from you. Share your thoughts and your feedback with me by scrolling down to the ratings and review section on your Apple Podcast app or whatever app you're listening on. And let me know what you think of this episode or the show in general. Your support means the absolute world to me. And just a simple tap of five stars can make a real impact in how this show gets reached by parents everywhere. So thank you so much for listening. And don't be a stranger. 